I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which deconstructs genre and narrative and finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. This is the last episode of Series 1, so we're taking a trip through some of the most poignant quotes and interesting moments of the show. Over the course of this podcast, a handful of topics have, quite naturally, come up time and again. It's been fascinating to watch a few common threads weave through each episode to the next. It's probably fair to say that if so many of our guests felt compelled to touch on these subjects throughout the series, it would serve as well to reflect on their thoughts. In highlighting each of these topics, I'm distilling the thoughts of many great minds in order to help you develop your writing. So stay tuned. Chapter 1. Becoming an Expert Expertise has to be one of the most spoken about topics on the show. It's the premise that to write respectfully and truthfully about something, you must turn yourself into an expert on the subject. Learn from others. Be diligent in your research. It's not just a nice to have. It's absolutely essential. The academic and author Sunny Singh says this is particularly important in telling stories of people from minority backgrounds. Look, reflect the world around you. Don't be afraid. We'll, we'll all get it wrong. That's not the point. It shouldn't become your excuse to not. You know, so I'm shocked to read books or see movies or television about London and it's all white. It's like, what's going on there? Write us. You might get us wrong, but write us. But also then do the hard work. Don't, don't replicate just the same old stereotypes. The simplest way to do it is read us. If you're not reading queer writers, if you're not reading, um, you know, writers of colour, if you're not reading non-British writers, if you're not reading women writers, you're limiting yourself. And whatever you're producing as your work that you may think is great is really poor craft. Sexist, homophobic, racist, imperialist writing, ableist writing is a failure of craft. It's shit writing. That's it. I know it doesn't sound very nice. I know there'll be lots of writers who'll be like, up in arms about it, but that's the, that's the way I look at it. Richard Bradley, editor-at-large of Worth magazine, says expertise is the linchpin of the organisation. What we want and what we want to convey is expertise and authority. And there's really two ways to get that. One is by reporting, really extensive reporting, and the other is by having been an expert or being an expert in a particular field, such as, say, medicine. Now, Reporting is expensive and hard to fund and often hard to monetize. So I think there's been this kind of general shift towards, okay, well, if we're reporting on medicine and science, you know, maybe we should just have a doctor do it. Uh, maybe we should just have a doctor writing a column rather than assigning a young reporter on a medical beat to try to report out a story that, that will take some time and cost some money. And I'm not entirely comfortable with that shift. Uh, I still like people who are familiar with kind of the norms and mores of journalism and, and what's involved there. But there's a, there's a healthy balance, and sometimes it's kind of nice to have a, uh, a doctor or whomever be the source of, of information that you want. Uh, for me, it's, it's kind of excitement and fascination when you're listening to someone who's really smart, really informed, has had a, you know, an accomplished career in a particular field, and knows what she or he is talking about. That, I love that. It's that level of knowledge and intelligence 
is, is quite cool to see and watch. Uh, and you feel like you're really getting some benefit from that. And intimacy coordinator Ita O'Brien explains why the process of learning, of becoming an expert, is vital in conveying realistic sexual encounters on screen. We all have our own personal and private sexual expression. We all, you know, all have our own different way that we connect with our loved ones and then through to our intimate um, expression. So everybody's different. And we want that, we invite, you know, that, that, that individuality. So the more the writer can, can write the intimate content for these characters, you know, for these characters through into their intimate expression. And like with normal people, that's absolutely what we were focusing on. And then the narrative can be all about that. And we want all the discussions about who these characters are and then what their intimate expression is and what physicality they get, they, they explore. So, for example, you talk about um, Fifty Shades of Grey. So there you have, you know, sort of that fetish exploration um, and the energy of that and the desire for that and what that satisfies, how that satisfies those characters. You know, somebody in their personal lives might have never gone near that. But of course, if they're going to honour that sexuality and that intimate expression, you're going to research it, you're going to make sure that you understand all the paraphernalia. I would, you know, just as I would do, I'd go and speak to people that engage with that community. So I get it right. So I get that detail right. I honour that storytelling, that um, part of our, of our community. And I would be asking the, the writer, don't just leave it. And again, if you don't know, if you have an idea of what that sexual expression is, so perhaps you're a heterosexual person and you're writing a queer lesbian intimate scene, you know, you might have an idea about it, but that's not enough. Go do your research as a writer, go and talk to that community, get books, read about it, so that you make sure that what you're writing is also is detailed and correct, so that anybody that is from that community will, will feel seen and understood and heard, and then, then represented. Chapter 2, Narrative Bias. The issue of narrative bias is something we should all be aware of, that we should look out for eagerly. All too often we lean towards believing in truths that line up with our own way of thinking, and that can lead to glaring gaps in our knowledge, or worse, unjust prejudice and division. When the pandemic began, there were many assumptions that human behaviour would begin to fundamentally change. Rory Sutherland, the UK Vice Chairman of Ogilvy, disagreed with that notion and suggests that we'd all go back to normal once it's over. He says we shouldn't extrapolate meaning in a linear fashion. The, the standard economist's assumption of value being price versus functionality uh, is, a, is, you know, to a great extent, pretty dumb. So, you know, in a sense, a Dyson is an example of value-seeking behaviour. I mean, even a £500 hairdryer, right? Which... I'll be absolutely honest with you, and I say this to everybody. If Dyson had come to me and said, I think there's a market for a 900-pound vacuum cleaner, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, I would have told him to basically don't give up the day job, Jim, because it's a distress purchase. It's a grudge purchase. People basically try and blag one off their parents if they can. You only buy one when the old one breaks, so sales are going to be incredibly slow. Um, you Or you might buy one if you if you're forced to move into... You know, if you move out of rental property and then I go, well, anyway, anybody who could spend 900 quid on a vacuum cleaner probably employs a cleaner anyway. So they don't even know what their vacuum cleaner looks like. Right. And I could have trotted that all out. This is why the book's called Alchemy. And it makes absolutely perfect sense. But it's also 100 percent wrong. And we have a 
fundamental problem with narrative bias, which is once something makes sense, we not only think it's true, which may be a false assumption, we also think it's completely true. It's the whole truth, which is almost definitely a, a false assumption. And so this narrative bias where you go, oh, I've got a convincing story for this, which makes everybody sound rational and sensible. Tick, check, right? No more thinking required. And in fact, the real why is much more complicated. Behavioural science expert Christian Hunt explains why narrative bias led to many people flouting the rules early in lockdown. There is something called social proof that we take. We're social animals and we take comfort from doing what other people do. So if you see lots of other people doing it or lots of people inviting you along to something, it kind of feels okay. Explanation for that is evolutionary because in the old days when you were being chased by animals across the savannah, uh, it made sense to do what other people did, because if you were the outlier, you would be literally taken out by whatever it was that was there. So it made a lot of sense to just copy what other people do. And we, we do that quite a lot in terms of, you know, that's why restaurants have seat people near the window so that it looks like it's full. Nightclubs build artificial queues outside them so that people can have a sense of, well, there's a lot of people queuing. It must be worth doing. So we copy what other people do. So if you just combine those two things, you've got authority figures telling you not to do something, which encourages you to do the opposite in many cases. You've got a load of other people doing it, so it's not weird to do it. And then the final piece, I think, is that you look at it and say, look, if it really were that bad, they would have banned it because the government's very good at banning all sorts of other things. So if you look at the controls around cigarettes, around alcohol, we're constantly having things prohibited that, that we might wish to do. And so there is a very simple thing is we are conditioned to just, you know, being told what to do in certain instances. So when we're not having it physically stopped, we kind of think it's okay. What harm could it possibly do? If it was really that serious, they would have banned it. So there's these sorts of dynamics that are at play and a whole host of other ones that basically tells you controlling and influencing human behavior is not simply a case of telling people to do something. You've got to think more broadly and understand the drivers behind it. It's true to say that narrative ebbs and flows throughout the ages. Perceptions change, and so stories are often adapted to touch the hearts and minds of a more modern audience. Cardinal Vincent Nichols, the Archbishop of Westminster, explained the impact of narrative bias on the gospel. Your Bible represents a many, many people's understanding of their faith, but also many people's enrichment of their family life. Now, I remember a long time ago listening to a learned scripture scholar who explained to us how the New Testament narratives are stories that have been tested and tested until they eventually got into the form in which we received them. The Gospels were not written till, you know, 50, 60, 70 years after Jesus had died. Now, what was going on in those 60 years? people were telling the story of Jesus. And they were telling it with great faithfulness, but they were just edging it this way and that to suit the, the audience. So each of the Gospels is different because the story is being told to a different group of people. And, I, and this chap said to me a wonderful phrase. He said, good storytelling is when you rearrange the outward, the outward elements so as to reveal the inner meaning even more clearly. And, and I think that's a great art of a storyteller. You tell it in one setting in one way, in another setting in a slightly different way. And a man who I have in mind could retell the gospel stories into a modern idiom in a way that was absolutely spellbounding. He could just stand in front of 100 people and say, I'm going to tell you the story of the prodigal son, but put it into a modern idiom. 
the inner truth was exactly the same. It's wonderful stuff. Chapter 3. Truthful Stories The premise of narrative bias and how it can skew our perception of reality runs neatly alongside another theme that's shown up many times on the podcast. And that's just how essential it is for us to tell truthful stories. Professor Vincent Brown, the author of Tacky's Revolt, the story of an Atlantic slave war, explained the issue's cause when the history books omit important truths. National curriculums are generally focused on nation states, and I'm a historian who thinks that they shouldn't be. Mm. Speaking specifically about the UK, I think that UK institutions used to teach the history of empire and used to teach the history of the world before decolonization. And I have a kind of funny story about this. I, I, used, I do a lot of research in Britain. And uh, in the 1990s, when I was staying there a lot with friends, I remember staying with a friend in East London, a white British guy, college educated guy, who was married to a woman from India. And when he found out what I worked on, he asked me, he said, you know, so why is it the Jamaicans speak English? And his wife from India said, colonialism, you bloody idiot. Why the hell do you think I speak English? Okay. But now, as a college educated guy, you would think he should have known that. And yet, right, as I said, after decolonization, British institutions stopped teaching the history of Great Britain as the history of empire and started teaching the history of the UK again as this kind of island chain off the European peninsula, right? Little England became the focus of a national history as opposed to an imperial history. And so by the time, you know, these people from the former colonies come to Britain, right, making claims based on that history of empire, a lot of Britons, even educated Britons, were saying, well, what do they have to do with us? Right. And the answer came back, you know, we're here in Britain because you were there colonizing our countries. And yet, you know, people don't are not educated in that larger global imperial history. And it creates significant tensions, right? So the people who don't understand that longer trajectory, that wider history, are confused and oftentimes offended by the kinds of claims people make on British history that they don't recognize, that they don't understand, that they don't see as part of the history of Little England. It's not only important to tell truthful stories about others in order to create a more informed world, but it's also fundamental that we're true to ourselves. Country musician Liv Austin explains how important it is to reevaluate why you're telling a certain story and how doing so improved her own writing. I think when I first started releasing music, I was so kind of newly in love with country music and I wanted to be a part of it. I wanted to be legit. I wanted to do that. And uh, I was writing from the heart. I was writing songs that, that meant a lot to me. But I think now I'm less chasing a genre and I'm more just writing whatever comes to me that day. And I'm sure it's still inspired by different music that I listen to, but maybe less conscious. I'm just writing in the style that fits me that day, whatever I hear in my head, and um, then try and do a production around it. And sometimes it's a lot more poppy or singer-songwriter or whatever you want to call it, but I'm not, I'm not trying to go, how could this be a country song? Um, how can I market this as a country song or how can I market it as this and that? And uh, maybe being a bit less concerned with what you call my music and uh, just writing something that's really unique to me. Because the artists that I love, they're hard to place. 
sometimes um how do you describe this person oh I don't really know you just have to listen to them because they're not like anyone else and uh, I think I'm hoping to be more of that now and just kind of writing in the way that I'm uh, increasingly understanding is unique to me but remember as the investigative journalist Mark Williams Thomas explains truth is subjective truth's a really interesting thing because people often say to me I need to get to the bottom of the truth well one person's truth can be very different to somebody else's truth. So what I say is it's always about trying to find out what happened, because what happened can only be one single narrative. So when somebody, for example, comes in and makes an allegation to the police, what the police need to be doing is to establish what took place, not look to try and substantiate their allegation. So in the same way as when someone comes in and makes an allegation, what we need to do is take that look at it and then build evidence both for and against. And there are individuals out there, and we've seen it in terms of certainly the British media, uh, individuals, famous people who have been pulled through the coals because a single person's come forward, made an allegation. It's then got into the public domain through the media. Uh, and of course, their life has been destroyed. And we saw that with the fantasist Carl Beach, who has an awful lot to answer for. But then so do the authorities. You know, his story and his some of the information he gave, you know, I was talking to the Metropolitan Police in the very early days and telling them his story is not worthwhile. It doesn't stand up to scrutiny, yet they continued with it. They pursued it when lots of people said look exactly the same. And I think the authorities have a duty to, to act in an appropriate way. And I think it's the pendulum. I often refer to a pendulum. So we are very poor I think as a, as a world, but certainly in the UK where I operate, to ever have the pendulum sit in the middle. So when some allegation is made, the pendulum will swing one way. And of course, after Jimmy Savile, the pendulum swung in such a way that it was really after those people to whom any allegations were made against. What we then needed to do was bring that pendulum back to the middle and use the same integrity, investigative skills that we would apply in the normal day-to-day, -day, which is to look at every element of it and not just simply believe the allegation that's being made. A massive thank you then to every one of my guests who's contributed to the podcast so far. And thanks, of course, to you for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. And if you'd like to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine. Please like us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Series 1 has drawn to a close, but it won't be long before we're back with Series 2. So watch this space. Goodbye for now. Stay safe. And please, keep writing. Keep writing.